right, ladies and gentlemen, a formal welcome to Kabbalah and Coffee. Sunday, November 21st, 2021. This is a very special week, right? It's the week of Thanksgiving, which I always feel like, you know, in America, we have special days for things, right? But in, in reality, every day should be Thanksgiving, right? Every day that we wake up in the morning, we should offer thanks. Modani. We offer thanks and gratitude for being here. Every day, you know, like Mother's Day is once a year. Nah, Mother's Day is every day, right? Every day is Mother's Day. Every day is, uh, is, is, is really, in essence, a holiday, a holy day, if we just choose to open our eyes and, and be connected to that energy. So today we're going to speak about some primordial realities that Kabbalah develops or Kabbalah um, reveals and expresses and see what it has to do with our lives. And I think in this process, we're going to walk away with some powerful information. A lot of this stuff that we're going to explore at the beginning is stuff that, you, that some of you perhaps have heard. But as we, as we expound on it today, I think we're going to have you know, certainly some new information. By the way, before we get started, um, into the content. I want to hold up this brand new copy of Tanya. This is Tanya Bilingual Edition, In Town Jewish Academy Commemorative Edition, as you can see here. This is what we're going to be giving out tonight at our 19th Kislev celebration, 19th of Kislev celebration, tonight at 6 p.m. Right here, it's a free event, open to everyone, and you get a free Hebrew-English copy of Tanya. And why that's significant, come tonight to find out, because we're celebrating the 19th day of Kislev, yes. The burgundy color, I don't believe there's significance to it, but I could be wrong. Although, one second, I think the Alter Rebbe's um, books, the founder of Chabad's books, I think the covers, many of them are in that burgundy color. Why that burgundy color, I don't know, but I think maybe there is some sort of connection. But back to, back to our story of, of, uh, of the primordial realities. So Kabbalah teaches that before the reality that we know existed, there was another reality. And this is called the world of Tohu. What is Tohu? Tohu is chaos. Where does this word Tohu come from? It comes from the Bible. First few verses of the Bible, of the Torah, it says that the earth, the Haaretz, Haisa, Tohu, Vavahu, the world was empty and void, and the Spirit of God was hovering over the face of the earth, or what would become the earth. But anyway, the, the, the Torah tells us, the Bible says, that, that the world itself, there was the state of, of, of desolateness, desolateness, does that make sense? And emptiness and chaos. Tohu vavohu. Kabbalah explains that this realm, this, this state of Tohu, was actually a state of reality that preceded our state of existence called Tikkun. So we live in a world that's called Tikkun. As you may be familiar with the phrase Tikkun Olam, to repair the world. We live in a world that's entire why and wherefore is all about Tikkun, it's all about repair. Right? It's all about fixing and mending and healing. But there was another world in which the energy was very different. It wasn't a healing energy. It wasn't a fixing energy. It was a chaotic energy. 
The truth is, you need something to be broken before you can fix it, right? I mean, you can't, if there's nothing broken, you can't fix it. So this is why, right, Kabbalah understands that before a realm that's all about fixing and healing, you have a realm that's all about chaos and brokenness. So what is the nature of this realm of tohu, this realm of chaos? Let me, let me explain. And I'm going to give you the language of Kabbalah, and then I'll, and then I'll explain it hopefully in, in human terms. So in the language of Kabbalah, it's called a world where the lights are big and the vessels are small. That's the language, the language of Kabbalah. The light is big and the vessels are small. What are vessels? Vessels are containers. So don't, pi- I mean, you could picture, you could picture like a physical vessel and physical light, but that's not really doing justice to this idea. It's that the notion of big light and small vessel could be understood on any, on any level. You could think about water. One of my favorite examples to give in this to- on this topic is a fire um, hose, like a like a you know a powerful hose, and a paper cup. Yeah, you power the water, the force of water into that cup. What's going to happen? The cup explodes. Not only do you not have water in the cup, you don't have a cup. You with me on this? There's no cup anymore. Yeah, you tell an idea. You you take a. Uh, um, a seven-year-old. And Albert Einstein begins lecturing to a seven-year-old. Yeah? Not only is a seven-year-old not going to understand anything, assuming Albert Einstein is teaching on his level, right? Not only is a seven-year-old not going to understand anything, he's going to be very confused. Right? The eye takes in too much physical sunlight. Not only is it not beneficial, oh, more light the better, it's worse. Cameras, remember those old school cameras? Yeah, the ones with film. You guys remember film? <laughs> Came in a little canister. You guys remember that? Those were the days. Ah, those were the days. Okay, I think I think uh, film photography is back, sort of, right? Like vinyl. Like vinyl. Yeah, I'm actually considering bringing my vertical record player tonight to the 19 Kislev celebration to plug in some old tunes record of, of Hasidic tunes. I'm contemplating, or I could just pull it from Spotify. I'm contemplating one of, these two, one of these two options. Anyway, but film, yeah, so in order to create an image, you need light. Too much light, and your whole image is washed out, and you have nothing, there's nothing there, it's just light. We've all had that experience back in the day of accidentally opening up the back of the camera, and your film gets exposed. Yes, remember that? Boom. Your pictures are gone. These are much easier. So, Tohu, the world of chaos, is a world in which there's a lot of light and not a lot of vessel. The lights are big. The vessels are small. And in that situation, in that context, in that scenario, we have what Kabbalah calls Shviras HaKelem. The shattering of the vessels. The vessels actually break. They explode. They split apart. The shards of which we are trying to fix. That is what tikkun olam is in the original Kabbalistic sense. Tikkun olam is repairing the shards of the broken vessels that contain sparks of holiness that have been shattered now and embedded across the world. It's like a video game. 
almost, right? Where you're on a mission to seek out whatever it is, right? You're seeking out coins or whatever. Think of Super Mario Brothers on my Game Boy in the 80s. Remember that? Remember that? Anyway, I was more of a Tetris guy. But Super Mario Brothers also got played. Here's the deal. You know, you're seeking out different, you know, secret things in different places. That's the job, the spiritual job that we are here for in the realm of Tikkun. But before Tikkun, before the world of repair, came the world of chaos, the world of Tohu, where the lights were big, the vessels were small, and it shattered. Let's speak about this on a personal level. What does that mean? Because before I explain what it is on a personal level, let me explain to you the significance of this. There's a verse that says, I think it's from Proverbs, Proverbs, Gam es ha'olam nasan belibo shaladam. The world, too, was given in the heart of the human being. Gam es ha'olam, also the world, natan, was given belibo shaladam in the heart of a human being. Which means that the universe, the macrocosm, exists inside the microcosm of the human experience. If it exists out there, it exists in here. This is a major Kabbalistic truth. So if there are two realms of chaos and repair in the larger universe, there are these two realms of chaos and repair in our micro-universe, the micro-universe of the human being, of the human biosphere. And the way we understand this is the distinction between emotions and intelligence. Emotions are chaos. Intelligence is repair. Let me explain. Right? You talk about the, the idea of big light and small vessels. Sounds like emotions, right? Emotions are big and oftentimes volatile. Oh, I should mention. Big light, small vessel that leads to shattering of the vessels. You know what this sounds like? Emotions. Emotions are big. Sometimes they're bigger than what we know what to do with, right? They're so big often that we can't process it fully. We can't fully deal with the emotions. They're, whether it's joy, whether it's love, whether it's anger, whether it's sadness, emotions are oftentimes, not always, but oftentimes very big and they can be very volatile. Correct? Present company excluded, obviously, but right? No, but the truth is, no, present company included because it's actually a feature, not a flaw, of emotions that they're very big and very powerful. They're big, they're loud, they're strong, and honestly, when you're feeling an emotion, really feeling an emotion, the complement or the, the, the balancing emotion that might help temper it, when I say temper, not like temper anger, but like that might help quell the emotion or bring the emotion down to earth, you don't feel it. It's like any sort of, when you're feeling angry, a sense of, you know, compassion or a sense of love, that's out the window in that moment in that full experience because you're feeling that emotion and it's completely isolated or it feels isolated and it's so big and it, become, and it can become volatile. Again, this is true even in love. I've said this many times. We use the expression falling in love. We don't say walking in love, gliding in love, sauntering in love. You know, we don't talk about strolling into love. We talk about falling, into, falling in love. Why falling? Falling denotes this idea of something, something larger than what can be reasonably processed. It's big 
and it's grand, and sometimes it can take us by surprise. Oftentimes it does take us by surprise, and it can, and it can bring out, it, oftentimes it's a bigger experience than what we can you know, normalize in a traditional sense. It's not, it's not a bad thing, it could be a good thing, but it's a big thing. So that is a little bit about emotions. Emotions are big. Emotions can be very volatile. What's interesting, what's interesting, is that alongside emotions, we've also been given intelligence. And intelligence is the exact opposite from emotions. Intelligence, right, our minds are rational, logical, the thought, hopefully, right? Rational, logical, methodical, thought out. It's, it's um, our minds are very uh, linear. We think of things through, again, hopefully, there's a beginning, there's a middle, there's an end. So whereas emotions like spring up right in the, like full-blown emotion out of nowhere, it just like pops up. Our, our intelligence is very rational and very plotted out. It's very, it's very um, organized. This is symbolic or this is um, a mirror of the realm of tikkun, the realm of repair, where the light is small and the vessels are large. In the realm of tikkun, you have reasonable, manageable realities. The light, again, is cut down to size. It's, it's a smaller amount of light. The vessel is very large. It can contain the light. Again, this is like a, a metaphor. The light is not literally light, but it's uh, the, con concept, the concept of it can contain the light. And when it comes to in intelligence, our rational minds, this is very much in line with that. Our rational minds are very able to we, we, we can think of things in a logical fashion and, and, um, and, and organize our thoughts and things make sense and things can be made to make sense. Vis-a-vis -vis the emotions, we find something very interesting. And that is that in a healthy system, in a healthy human system, the mind is meant to control the heart. So instead of allowing the emotions to run away, to run away from us or run away with us, or take us on a ride, whatever sort of cliche we want to use, the goal is that we use our mind, we use our rational mind to temper the emotions, to kind of rein in the emotions so that they don't get too big, too big to handle. Right? That's the goal. And there's a phrase that's actually brought in Tanya, that's brought in, in Kabbalah and Hasidic philosophy, and that is Moach Shalat Al-Halev, which translates to the mind controlling the heart. Now this is not mind control in the sense of someone controlling someone else's mind. This is mind control of, in the sense of one controlling one's own mind. That we're in control of our thoughts to the point that we can then uh, mediate, if you will, our own emotions. So that when we're feeling sad, when we're feeling angry, when we're feeling a little bit too, you know, buoyant, maybe, if there's ever such a thing as too buoyant, but whatever, if there's, if there's an emotion that's getting a little bit too carried away, we can use our rational mind to kind of temper things and bring things back down to earth in a healthy fashion. So this is really the interplay between mind and heart that exists in a healthy, um, a healthy context. So one example, one, one image that might be helpful is the idea of a pet dog. Why do I say a pet dog? Because in Kabbalah, it's interesting, a dog in Hebrew is called Kelev. Kelev is a combination of Kulo Lev or Kol Lev. 
kulo lev, which means all heart. So a dog, again, I'm not getting, I'm not waiting into the cat versus dog thing. That's beyond my pay grade. That's not for now. But a dog is said to, ha- to be very emotive, very, ex- very excited, right? Very warm and very excitable and very emotional. Picture a, a, a person walking their dog. Yeah? What's, what's going on? You have the person who, you, who hopefully is in control, walking their dog, taking the dog where the person either wants to go or where they know that the dog needs to go. Picture another scenario where the dog is walking the person, right? That's where you might have like a big dog and a small person and the dog is like, you know, schlepping, dragging the person where it wants to go. And obviously, that's a situation where you got to get a smaller dog or you got to get stronger because that's not a, you can't be dragged around the belt line, you know, dragged on the, on the, uh, on the, on the, um, the asphalt, the cement, whatever it is. It's not, it's just, it's just dangerous, right? It's not, it's not a healthy situation. If you can't, if your dog gets very excited when it sees another dog and it's going to run toward the other dog, but you don't want it to run to the, and you can't hold that dog back, that could be a dangerous situation, right? It could be. I'm not a dog owner, but I'm assuming that could be a dangerous situation. Maybe. At least potentially. So what's the point? The point is that it's in a healthy scenario, it's the human that's walking the dog. Again, I'm using this as a metaphor. The human would be intelligence. The dog would be emotions. And it's healthy when the intelligence is walking the dog, is walking the emotions. When our minds are guiding our emotional disposition. When our emotions are guiding our mind, that's when the dog is walking the person. That's an unhealthy situation. What that looks like is, and this is even more potentially problematic than just feeling big emotions. This is where we feel big emotions. And to justify the big emotions, we begin rationalizing the big emotion. You with me on this? That's when the mind is conforming to the heart. So the heart feels, let's say, let's use anger. Let's use a clearly negative emotion, anger. Ram, uh, parenthetically, Maimonides writes in Hilchot Deot, which means it's his, his, his chapters, chapters on human character and character development. So he says that in general, when it comes to various characteristics, character dispositions, there's a range there's a range from one extreme to the other, right? So, for example, for, with giving. So a person could be, you know, not giving at all or giving everything. Like, there's a big range of giving. So the Rambam says, Maimonides says, in general, find the, the extremes and then try to get to the middle, right? Not extreme this way, not extreme that way, to the middle. That's a healthy balance, a healthy balance. He says when it comes to anger... Go all the way to the other side against anger. He said, anger is the exception. Typically, we find the middle. When it comes to anger, run away as far as you can from anger. Because anger, by the way, it doesn't mean that you can never become you know, indignant or you know, recognize that something is wrong and troubling and needs to be fixed. All of that is healthy. But anger, anger, rage, that sort of emotion... That's not healthy, and I think we can recognize that as unhealthy, even if we recognize that as human beings, that is something that we need to deal with on occasion. Nonetheless, we can recognize at the same time that it's, uh, that it's not a healthy thing. So 
when it comes to anger, I'm just using this as, a, as an example, um, because it's, again, as Rambam Maimani says, it's a clearly identifiable negative emotion. So when it comes to anger, a person might feel anger. Again, naturally, it sometimes happens. But then go ahead and use the mind to justify the emotion. That's when the dog is walking the person. You with me on this, right? That's when I feel the anger, I feel the rage, and then I come up with a whole explanation, a whole rationalization of why this is justified and it makes sense, and it's holy anger, and it's justified anger, and it's righteous anger, etc., and therefore I'm allowed to, to be in the state of anger. Or resentment or whatever it is, and we know that all of these emotions, not all, but these some of these negative emotions are toxic more to ourselves than to anyone else. And it really is in our own best interest to not have that anger, let alone for the other person. But, even for, but more importantly, perhaps, for ourselves, it's unhealthy to be stewing in a state of anger and resentment. I think there's a phrase that says resentment is like drinking poison and hoping the other one's going to die, which um, <laughs> that doesn't work, right? So... Being in control of our emotions means that we're using our mind to guide, to mentor, to mediate the emotions, and not the other way around, to justify the emotions. Right? When it's justifying the emotions, we're putting the emotions first and the intelligence behind. When it's leading the emotions, we're putting the intelligence first and the emotions behind, and that's a healthy construct. But if you look at it just with a clear and, and blank slate, you would say that the emotions, one might justifiably argue, you might say that the emotions are necessarily more powerful or inherently more powerful than the mind. Right? The emotions are very powerful, very volatile, very, you know, lots of feelings, and the intelligence, cold and calculated, and, you know. And, and you would think if you put, it in a, put them in a cage match, or in the octagon, right? You pit, you pit in, emotions versus intelligence, right? One-on-one. On one. Forget them working together. No. You pit them against each other. Who's going to win the cage match? Who's going to win that? You would think emotions. And in truth, this lines up with the mystical, the Kabbalistic understanding of tohu and tikkun, where tohu precedes tikkun. Tohu is considered to be a more powerful realm, a more powerful more powerful reality, even though it ends in the shattering of the vessels. It's considered to be a more powerful reality. Where the lights are big, the vessels are small. It's a powerful reality is the world of chaos. The world of repair is like, you know, a little bit more calm, a little bit more um, rational and normalized and, and, and organized. But not Tohu... Not, si not excited, right? Not, no. Not, not excited, more rational, you know, figuring out how to best, you know, put the pieces together. It's like doing a puzzle. If you're very emotionally wound up in doing a puzzle, you're going to be throwing the pieces. Right? You have to be methodical. You've got to, you know, work your corners, work your edges. At least that's my strategy. Right? And then call the kids to finish it. <laughs> anyway, right, so you've got you know, you to you be thought out when you do this, when you're when, in the realm of repair. And when you're in the realm of chaos, all bets are off. And indeed, it seems that the world of chaos is stronger than the world of repair. Tohu is more powerful than tikkun. Chaos is more powerful than repair. Which might lead us to believe that our emotions 
are ultimately or could ultimately be out of our control to rein in. And those we're talking about reining in our emotions with intelligence. But the question now becomes, who says we can? Maybe the emotions are simply too strong for us to rein in intellectually. Maybe in the, the physical example that I, the analogy of the dog, maybe the dog is too big for us to walk, to handle. The leash is too weak. The person is too, is too weak. The dog is too big and strong. Maybe that's it. This is where we're up to in our conversation in a discourse number 13, chapter... Let me see what chapter we're up to. Chapter 2. This was the last... The la- yeah, hold on. We're going to get to questions in a second. I just want to kind of lead into the, to, to what we're up to. This is where we're up to right now. In, 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 and we're, at, we're, we're in the process of asking a question. And that is, the premise that we've been developing is to say that the human being has the ability to overcome... Temptation to overcome cha- inner challenge, to overcome, you know, the, the inner distractions that pull us, try to pull us in various directions. We're asking now, who says? Maybe that inner desire, that inner emotional desire is bigger than what we can reasonably rein in. Especially since it comes from the realm of Tohu, does that temptation, desire, that emotion. And what's trying to rein it in is only coming from Tikkun, and from, the, from a lower realm or a latter realm, the realm of repair. So that's where we're up to in the question. I'm going to develop that in a moment a little further. But Toba, I see that you have a question. Jump in. Well, I can think of times in my life, um, even some minor things, where I let my intelligence or whatever, my rational mind overcome my emotional and I should have gone the other way. You're saying you should have followed your heart. Yeah. Okay. You know, we got to know when the heart is leading us in the right way. We have to also know when the heart's leading us. I'm not suggesting, thank you for, for pointing that out and for allowing the clarification. I'm not suggesting that all emotions are necessarily negative and need to be pushed down. No. There are many good emotions, healthy emotions, and healthy instinct and, you know, gut, you know, feelings and intuitions and that sort of thing that we need to follow. We have to discern, we have to have the ability to know when it's a healthy emotion, when it's an unhealthy emotion. That's another type of discernment where the mind would come in and say, hold on, this is healthy, this is positive, this is a good feeling, let me cultivate it. As opposed to this is a negative feeling, let me work on minimizing that feeling. How do we have the wisdom to know between, to, to distinguish between one and the other? Good. That's, a, that's another question. But that's, uh, that's a very important piece of it. But yeah, not all emotions are, are negative. No, not, on the contrary. Emotions are very important. It's not like we've been given emotions for the, for the sole purpose of taking the wind out of their sails and becoming, you know, mechanical robots. That's not, that's not what... Kabbalah or Hasidic philosophy is trying to, trying to tell us. Emotions are good. Emotions are valuable. But at the same time, if it's a negative emotion, right, then we have to have the ability or th- then the work begins to, to work with that, to mitigate it. Yaakov. Um, well, just for uh, Tova's question, uh, fear is very difficult to figure out. Um, you know, is that... Are we uh, listening to the, you know, universal 
inferiority complex or are we um, being warned of impending uh, harm? Right. It's very, very difficult. Right. Uh, Fear is a very important um, protection for a human being to be able to keep a human being safe. At the same time, if fear is getting in the way of us accomplishing what it is that we need to do in life, then it can become debilitating or maybe debilitating is a too strong of a word, but it can become an impediment. to out. If a person is afraid, right, to take on a challenge or start the business that they're the, they, they, they know they want to start, but they're, like if, it's, if the fear is getting in the way of, of, of natural progress, then that fear needs to be worked with and, and, and you know, tempted to be pushed away. If it's, a, if it's a healthy fear, then we need to listen to that fear. To, again, along the lines of what I said to, to Toba, we have to have the wisdom to be able to discern between one and the other. And then there was uh, one other question, just uh, when you said the, uh, you know, the, the broken worlds and, and I guess those, the, the Sephiroth, um, are those like, could that be the Big Bang and the, all the shards of the planets? Physical shards versus emotional shards. I, I don't I don't know how it how it intersects with you know various theories about the origins of the universe. I don't know. I mean I hear that it's it is interesting that there is a theory about a big bang and an explosion and Kabbalah for two thousand years has been talking about a primordial reality that you know that explodes. I, I, but I, I it's beyond my pay grade to to kind of to 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 um, to go beyond that, that um, noticing that and to say, you know, these actually do intertwine and it's we're speaking, one speaks of the f- spiritual element of a physical phenomenon. That's, again, that's, uh, that would be speculation on my part and I would prefer to stick with what it says in the books as opposed to telling you my own theories. So I can't. Yeah, Imbo. Yeah, we might be able to bring in uh, Dr. Imbo from Chicago to speak about that. He was... Yeah, he may have some theories about that, but I don't know. But it's a good question. Um, I feel like there was a question here. Did somebody have a question? Yeah, Darren. Yeah, I got one. Yeah. So, um, are y'all familiar with this place? They got this place in Colorado, and it's called the, uh, the Institute of Hartmann. Is anybody heard of it? No. Hartmann. Uh, Hartmann. Hartmann. Well, anyway, so what they do is they uh, they, they study the Hartmann. It, it sounds exactly like the scientific side of what you're saying. And uh, they discovered that the heart has these things called sensory neurons, which are like mirror brain mm. neurons. And um, it's literally the exact same thing you're saying. They're talking about how you need to make a choice on how you feel, then you go in and you get this positive emotion, and then you build that out, and it affects the electromagnetic field around your body and stuff like that. But my question is, um, they're talking about, they found scientifically that uh, the heart actually is sending more information up to the brain than the brain is sending back down to the heart. Interesting. Interesting. You know, now they don't know what that information is. They're just saying, from a from a, a neural uh, neuro linguistic standpoint, that information is going more up from the heart than down from the brain. So I'm wondering if that's what you're saying, like you're thinking about a bigger. It's more powerful. Yeah. So can I? I'm going to repeat what Darren says so that everybody can hear online as well. So there's studies that are that are that are happening in Colorado and I believe also elsewhere that are recognizing that the heart has also some type of neuron neurons or some sort of like what we would consider like intelligence that the heart also has you know emotionally also has some sort of intelligence and the goal is 
to be able to mindfully, you know, uh, work with that. But the information, what Darren pointed out, interestingly, is that there's more, it seems like there's more information being sent from the heart to the brain than from the brain to the heart. Maybe that ties into this idea that the heart, the emotions stem from the world of, of, of tohu, of chaos, which is a bigger, more powerful, what we might say more influential realm than the world of tick on the world of repair, which is more the intellectual world. Very interesting. I mean, I, I again, it's, it's hard to say exactly how that plays out on a physiological level, but it sounds like that could, that could be speaking, you know, kind of to the same, to the same idea. I have heard, I am familiar a little bit with that idea about the, the heart being able to, to have some sort of intelligence. It's interesting because Kabbalah speaks of the intellectual powers and the emotional powers, and it talks about, literally, in ancient Kabbalah, it talks about the mind of the heart and the heart of the mind. It talks about the feelings of the mind and the intelligence of the heart, and it says that each has elements of the other within it. In other words, not only are there two distinct buckets and categories, intelligence and emotions, but each one also has elements of the other. In fact, we discussed this in a previous Kabbalah and Coffee text. This is one that we did, I believe it was in 2020, we were doing it all on Zoom. This was in um, the course that we did called Learning How to Love. I think in Learning How to Love, we spoke about there the, 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 the crossover that exists between the various um, intellectual and emotional um, dispositions. But it, be that as it may, there is this, this power of the heart, the power of the emotion that is very, it's very real. And oftentimes it could feel that the, that, the, that the mind doesn't stand a chance. When we're angry, when we're afraid, sometimes it feels like the deck is stacked and there's no way around it. So I want to jump in and read this in the text. Yeah, yeah, Yaakov, jump in. Let's pass this around. Uh, yeah, there might be a third area of, um, of, of knowledge um, besides that, you know, volatile <laughs> heart and, and the, uh, you know, intellectual, but, but maybe uninspired mind, which is the body. Oh, you're saying, a th yeah, well, so what's interesting is that in addition to the intellectual abilities and the emotional abilities, there is then this sort of um, judge, the arbiter, the great judge that kind of, that's us, right, part of us, that kind of decides how we're going to proceed. Are we, are we going to exercise, you know, the mind to control the heart? Are we going to let the heart, you know, do its thing? You can call it the body. You can call it, I don't know, something else. But there is this other element that necessarily is, is doing the deciding because each one left to its own devices would make its own choice but we're the ones that are kind of working between these two, these two different options. Okay, so let's pull this up inside. We, I believe I read this paragraph at the end of last week's session, and I said we're going to start again and kind of like reset it because it's very, very powerful, and, I, and we went through it pretty quickly. So we're on page, um, we're going to start again this one paragraph, bottom of 196. I'm going to pull it up on the screen. It's on page 196, bottom two lines, bottom paragraph there. I'm going to pull it up for the zoom. Okay, I'm going to start reading. He says, the problem, the problem of uh, dealing with our out-of-control 
temptations, desires, emotions. The problem is even more apparent when we explore the origin of the two souls, the two souls being the higher soul, the lower soul, the godly soul, the animal soul, higher self, lower self. He says the animal soul, which, by the way, is synonymous with emotions. Animal, the animal soul is like that dog. Again, there's nothing wrong with a dog. We're not saying it's evil, God forbid, or it's bad. It's just powerfully emotional and powerfully instinctual and powerfully reactive. So the animal soul, he says, is rooted in tohu, right? Tohu, that's the world of chaos, the emotional world, page 198 now. While the godly soul, which is marked by intelligence and rationality, the godly soul is rooted in tikkun, the world of repair, which is on an objectively, I'm adding those words, an objectively lower plane than tohu. The way it works, not only, in chron um, not only chronologically, not only in you know, which came first, the tohu or the tikkun, the answer is tohu, chaos came first, but it's also in degree of power, Tohu is a powerful world of, you know, just big lights. It's brash, it's big, it's bold. And Tikkun is little light, little light, large vessels, but little light. So Tikkun is lower. And it's written, now this is, this is pretty interesting. The verse here is from the Torah portion that we just read yesterday in synagogues around the world. It says, these are the kings who reigned in the land of Edom, before a king ruled over the children of Israel. And the Kabbalists explain, the mystics explain, that these represent the seven primordial kings of Tohu. If you saw my email, these are the kings of chaos, the kings of Tohu that preceded Tikkun. So there's a biblical verse that talks about kings in Edom before kings of Israel. Great. What does that mean for us? I don't know. There were these kings before those kings. But Kabbalah says Edom represents, the seven kings of Edom represent the seven emotions of the seven chaotic emotions. Love, discipline, compassion, ambition, humility, each one of the, and, and, and um, connectivity and leadership, each of these seven emotions could be very big, brash, and bold, and chaotic, even, even though in, in and of themselves they're, they're healthy emotions, they're positive emotions, but they can be amped up so much that they become a little bit overwhelming and chaotic. So the verse that says that there were kings in Edom before the kings of the children of Israel, that represents the chaos that precedes the order. So he concludes this paragraph with a question. The ability of the godly soul, which is marked by intelligence, rationality, it's methodical, it's thinking things through. The ability of the godly soul to master, it means to control, to rein in the animal soul, which is volatile and big feelings, is all the more puzzling. How is it possible for the godly soul to master, to control the animal soul, if the animal soul is coming from tohu and the godly soul is coming from tikkun? This is in addition to the questions we asked last time. The question we asked last time was the animal soul is influencing the human being well before the godly soul influences the human being. We're born with a very active animal soul. Again, nothing, not bad, but a very active self, dr drive to protect self. As I said last time, a baby cries. 
when a baby is born, baby cries, baby's hungry. It's not, none of this is, it's not a judgment. It's not, not a judgment. It's all good. But it's, uh, it's, it's, it feels itself. This first notion is self. It doesn't yet, it hasn't yet developed a sense of selflessness. It hasn't developed a sense of, oh, my mom wants to sleep. I'll eat soon. Let her sleep a little bit more. The, 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 there's no, there's, doesn't even exist in the calculus of, of the young child, of the baby, of the child. The first sense is, I need me. It is what it is. It's not a judgment. It's just that, that's the fact. It's only later that we develop a sense of me as part of a larger group, either a family or a community or a world, where I feel now responsibility to something other than myself, and maybe I can put myself aside for the sake of the larger or the other. That, all, all that comes later as we mature. So when, when it comes to a question of what I want versus what is wanted of me or what someone else wants or what I should be doing on some sort of higher level, his question really is, how is it ever possible to make the right choice? How is it ever possible to be expected to make the right choice? If that influence, that self-driven influence is embedded in our psyche, in our entire being from the moment we're born and that other learned ability to give of ourselves, to do the right thing, to control what we want for what's wanted of us, that only comes later, then, then, then how are we ever expected necessarily to be able to overcome that first desire, that base personality type of the selfish type and, and, and exercise the control over that? And that's the first question. And later on top, layered on top of that is the fact that the instinctive self, the instinctual self, the, the emotional self comes from the realm of tohu, the chaos, the big light. And the tikkun, the rational self, the giving self, comes from tikkun, a smaller, less light, lower realm, secondary realm. Yeah? You wouldn't need to repair if there wasn't chaos. And, and that I think that, and we didn't know it's chaos until we get the, con, you know, the consequences. Right. But um, and and I think that sort of like it's not like it's a bad thing. Which one? The totally. the chaos? Right. The and chaos is not a bad thing. It's a thing. It's just it could, control. yeah, it could be bad. Feeling a lot of love is good. Could also go too far, right? Too much, uh, too much love could also be dangerous, right? Discipline is good. Having boundaries is good. Having rules, it's all good. But too much discipline could lead to harshness, right? Everything is good up to a certain point. When it's too big, it, it, could, go, it could get negative. Um, it's kind of like if you just think about like, you know, in a room, you put a bunch of people with like very big personalities. They might not get along with each other because everyone's got a really big personality. It's the way it works. So in Tohu, you had a room with all big personalities and just the room wasn't big enough to handle all these personalities. Boom, the party went south. You know, the, just the party just, just ends, doesn't end well. It's too big. Um, tikkun, much more measured. But the real question is like this. We started off this, this entire, uh, this discourse, this discourse 13, by explaining Look, we, we, we have a simple, a simple um, theme throughout this book. And that is that we tell ourselves, we give, there's a thought process that allows us to get into trouble. 
And if we can identify that thought process and interrupt it, we can stay out of trouble. So what's the thought process that gets us into trouble? So here's one. We have different ones. Here's the one that we're focusing on now is where a person says, look, I would love to not do this, but I can't not do this. Like it's too strong. The urge is too powerful. I'm too wired this way. You know, it's, it's, just, it's just who I am. I have to do this. So he said, that's, it's, interrupt that and tell yourself you can be in control. But now he's asking, who says you can? Maybe you can't. Maybe it's really more powerful than what you can control. Maybe it's, it precedes the ability to control. There's this, you know, uh, this, this, this inherent, this natural desire that precedes the control. And it comes from Tohu versus Tikkun. So who says we can be in control? So let's now answer this and come to some sort of resolution and wrap up this piece of the conversation. So now we're on 198 in the middle where it says the godly soul rules. In truth, however, and here we now flip everything that we've said, we flip it on its head. In truth, however, in their sources, I'm going to explain this in a moment, in their sources, in other words, in the ultimate source, the godly soul, that's the higher self, the rational self, does have precedence over the animal soul. Even though we just said before that the world of chaos precedes the world of order, but in the source, order takes precedence. We learned earlier, Discourse 10, Chapter 2, that the Seder Hishtalshalot, Seder Hishtalshalot is a Kabbalistic term that refers to the entire spectrum of existence. Like from the highest spiritual realm to this physical world. So Seder Hishtalshalot means like the whole shebang, like everything in existence. So we learned before that the entire, that Seder Hishtalshalot is rooted on a plane higher than itself in the inwardness of Makif. In other words, think of it this way. Think of it as, uh, think of it as you're on a cruise in Alaska. Okay? You're on a cruise in Alaska and you see coming out of the water, you see like what looks like almost like a majestic mountain. Right? What do we call that? Glacier? Yes? Glacier? Iceberg? Glacier? Iceberg. Iceberg, it's not just lettuce. Okay, so we have iceberg, yeah? And you're looking at it, it's magnificent, it's tall, but you know that as big as whatever it is that's sticking out of the water, you know that it's, there's a lot that's beneath the surface as well, right, beneath the surface. The truth is sometimes you, only see, you don't see anything much, is this ti the Titanic? Isn't that what happened to the, the, the yeah? Tip of the iceberg, good, tip of the iceberg, perfect. Ah. Such wise people who created these uh, phrases. Tip of the iceberg. Right? You have a little bit that's sticking out, but there's a whole thing beneath it. So the same thing is true when it comes to the universe. So there's the revealed universe. And this refers to even the spiritual realms that you and I don't see but are revealed. But there's this, the way the universe comes out in, in, in expression, right? But then there's the deep-rooted source beyond what is manifest. Again, even spiritually. It's a, the source of the spiritual realms, like in preceding emanation, like in its core. And he says, on that level, on that level, let's actually go to the next page. No, okay, so I'll just say it outside. And on that level, tikkun precedes tohu. It's like a mirror. Think of a mirror. Think of a mirror. 
How's the mirror going to help? Does a mirror help here? I'm not sure. But what looks closer, is this going to work? Yeah, I think it's going to work. Imagine we have a mirror, okay? And I have two items. Use the mouse and, and, and a phone, okay? You have, so which is closer to me? The phone right now, right? Phone and mouse. But I have a mirror, and in the mirror, what do I see? I see the mouse again, and the phone is further, correct? Yes, is this at all make any sense? If we had a mirror right in front of here, yeah? So the mouse would be closer in the mirror, and the phone would be further away. So what's closer is closer, what's further is further. Or what's further is closer, and what's closer is further. Are closer, are than, closer the, than they appear. Than they appear. Right. Well, but I'm saying in this case, relative, yeah, so, so to me, right, so to me, like this is closer. So this would be higher, this would be lower, right? This is higher, this is lower. But in the mirror, this is right there, and this is further, is further up. So what's closer is really deeper in the source. You know what? Mirrors, no mirrors, it doesn't make a difference. It doesn't make a difference. Here's the, here's the Kabbalistic truth. What looks lower in the revealed sense is actually higher in the hidden realm. It's the, it's the, it's the, it's the, um, the inverse of the way it appears here, the way it is in its source. In the iceberg example, right, because the iceberg is just as if, and then the, it's all, its power is underneath it. Right, so the way, right, so the way it works is that when something is manifest, so as things are emanated from God, right? So first comes tohu, then comes tikkun, right? The way it is above is that same inverse. Think of a diamond now, right? So you have the big light and then the smaller light, but in the source, it goes like that also, where you have tohu, tohu, tikkun, tikkun is really higher. If it's working, it's working. If it's not working, it's not working. It doesn't change the fact. Well, the source first. Correct. That's the point. So what appears, again, in our manifest reality, right? What appears to be this hierarchy, this rigid hierarchy of higher, lower, bigger, smaller, is actually inversed. It's flipped in its source. In its source... Right? What is lower is really higher, and what's higher is really lower. That's the idea. That's the big idea. Like if I was standing on the roof, to me, then my light would be lower, and then you would be higher weight. So I'm guessing whatever is lower or higher depends on the vantage point of where you're seeing it. So now you say, exactly. depending on the source, you have to flip the vantage point. So what, in my situation, looks higher is actually lower if you change. If you change the perspective, it's the inverse of, of the situation. It's kind of like, you know, even right hand, left hand, right? So if you and I are talking and I'm raising my right hand, to you it's the left, right? It's, it's, uh, it's, it's the opposite, right? And vice versa. So you, you raise your left hand and I see it as your right side. So it's, it's just vantage points are different. So necessarily, the vantage point of us looking up and, if you will, God looking down is going to be the opposite. It's another way of conceiving it in our minds. But either way, the fact is this, that, what, that in manifest, in the, in the Seder Hishalshal, which is manifest 
creation, what's higher and lower is actually inverted in the source. This is, by the way, a major Kabbalistic truth that repeats itself many, many times. This notion that, that what appears lowest is actually highest. So, for example, the earth. This is a floor. Okay, outside. The earth, right? That seems like the lowest because everything's built on top of the earth. And the earth is like the lowest. In Kabbalah, it's understood as the earth is the highest. And, and where do you see it? The fact that the earth is what gives rise to life. The earth gives food. The earth gives life, right? So the trees that grow higher than the earth, you think, oh, the tree is taller, the tree is higher. So the, the tree is up and the earth is down, so that's higher, lower. No, the tree doesn't exist without the earth. So in truth, the earth is greater than... So the, my point is simply this. In Kabbalah, oftentimes, things are flipped. Things are inverse. What you think is higher, what you think is lower, in truth, is the opposite. This is lower, that's higher. Same thing, tr same thing is true with Tohu and Tikkun. Tohu, which is this big, volatile, chaotic world with big light and small vessels, and Tikkun, which is like this little light, little light, big vessels, that, that's, all in, that's all as things are manifest. But in their source, Tikkun, the realm of repair, is actually from a much deeper level than Tohu. So to, to kind of use what Marnin said a moment ago, not only is Tikkun in response to Tohu, we could look at it now a little bit differently and say that Tohu only exists because there's the, the, the ideal of Tikkun. In other words, we break it to fix it, so in the original intention is the fixing. Does that make sense? We broke it to fix it. That means that what's the original, original intention was the fixing. So on the deepest level, the initial movement, or even within, the initial ideal is, is the Tikkun is a repair. Going back to my puzzle analogy. It's kind of like, you know, you make a puzzle. How do you make a puzzle? You start off with a cardboard image. You take a jigsaw. You cut it up into pieces. You break it up. You throw it into a box. On the manufacturer's side, you start off with the fix, and then you break it. And when you buy it, on the user end, it starts off broken, and then you fix it. It's the inverse, right? The way we see it, first it begins broken, and then we fix it. The way it begins in origin, it starts off, look at that, we stumbled on a nice analogy. Who would have known? Who would have thought, right? On the, on the, on the original, on the originating uh, level, originator level, it starts off whole and then becomes broken. So in truth, in truth, in origin, Tikkun, the world of repair, is higher. Take a look at page 200 and let's read it in the original language. Again, in the original language, it's going to sound very mystical, but hopefully we've given some other ways of understanding this in our own lives. This is true of Tohu and Tikkun too. Tikkun, again, just to get the, the, to get the, um, the phrases. Tohu is chaos, Tikkun is repair. Tohu typically is understood to be higher than Tikkun, but now we're flipping it. Tikkun, the world of repair, is rooted in the essence of the infinite light higher than the roots of Tohu. You see that? The ultimate objective is the fixing. So even though it plays out that first it's broken and then you, can, you can't fix it if it's not broken. So it first has to play out by breaking and then fixing. But the original intent, the deepest and the core essence of the infinite light of God, the core essence of this infinite light is Tikkun, higher than Tohu.
In this sense, oh, now he gets into Jacob and Esau. In this sense, the twins. In this sense, Jacob was the true firstborn. Jacob and Esau are symbols in Kabbalah of Tikkun and Tohu. Again, respectively, Jacob is Tikkun, Esau is Tohu. Now, who was born first? Who was born first? Esau, Esau, right? First you have chaos, and then you have repair. But that's only in birth. In origin, in conception, who's first? Jacob. That's what he's saying now. Right? Uh, so Jacob and Esau are symbols of Tikkun and Tohu. And when we say that Esau was born first, that was, as the reason is, because Tohu preceded Tikkun. But this refers only to birth and revelation. Jacob, however, was truly the firstborn, as Rashi observes on the verse, his hand seizing the heel of Esau, that this is comparable to a tube. What enters first leaves last. You ready? Jacob was conceived of the first seminal drop. So in his source, Jacob Tikkun is higher than Esau Tohu. Are you with me on this? If you understand, again, he's explaining, Rashi explains this almost biologically, and we're explaining it now Kabbalistically, but the two are in, in, in the match. So they were twins. Who comes out first? Esau. But that means that Jacob is just deeper inside. right? That means that Jacob is the first one who's conceived, the back. It's like when you load a truck. Give a very mundane example. You're loading a truck. Yeah? The first stuff you load comes out last. So, I, sorry for being super mundane here, but the, Rashi says the same thing is true with the birth of Esau and Jacob. Who was born first? Esau. Who was born second? Jacob. But who was conceived first? Yeah? Or Jacob and then Esau. And that's why Jacob... Esau, and then in Revelation, Esau, Jacob. Make sense? Yes. Again, the mirror, the mirror image. So this is the same thing of Toa and Tikkun. Again, all of that is, you know, the physical level, whatever it is, but it's all symbolic of what we're discussing today. And that is the, realm of, the realms of Toa and Tikkun. Tohu is chaos. And in, in, in the birth realm, in the, in the revealed realm, in, in the realms that we're aware of, first there's Tohu, chaos, and then Tikkun. And Tikkun seems like the younger sibling the weaker sibling, yeah? But in conception, in source, in origin, in truth, in essence, it's flipped, it's inversed. Tikkun, repair, comes first. And again, just to break this down simply, it's because what, what is the original intention of all of this? The original intention is Tikkun. It's repair. That's the original intention. It's like getting back to my puzzle example, right? The original intention is a whole picture. But to make it interesting, first you have a whole picture, then you break it up and you cut and break it up into small pieces, and then you put it back together again. So the beginning and the end are really intertwined, and the middle is where it gets a little bit wonky. All of this is to say, let's, let's read it inside. Let, 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 let the text itself finish it off. 200. Second paragraph. Let us apply this to the animal and godly souls. The godly soul in its source is superior to the animal soul. Right? You think that the animal soul comes first. The animal soul first appears in our body. The animal soul first influences our lives. We cry, we're hungry, we're tired. Right? The animal soul has first dibs on our, on our being. Then the godly soul comes in. The animal soul seems more powerful. It's emotion. The, the godly soul is only intellectual. It's rational. It seems lower. So it seems by all accounts, by all metrics, animal soul is bigger. Godly soul is smaller. That's all the way it appears. But in truth, the godly soul in its source 
is superior to the animal soul. Let's continue third sentence here. This gives it second line, last word in the second line of that second paragraph. This gives it strength to overcome the animal soul. It derives strength from its source, the ultimate source. And since its source is higher than that of the animal soul, it follows that it does possess the power to dominate, in this case, to temper, control, mediate the animal soul. Although the animal soul possesses earlier effectiveness and influence over the body, in other words, in a revealed way, in a, in a pragmatic, revealed way, the animal soul comes first. But since the godly soul ultimately has a higher source to draw strength from, it has the ultimate power to prevail. This is where we come full circle back to how we started this discourse number 13. We started by saying that it's a folly. The book is called Overcoming Folly. We're trying to overcome various things that we tell ourselves, stories, narratives that we tell ourselves to get us into trouble. One narrative that we tell ourselves is, I can't. I can't, I can't control myself. I can't. I get angry, I get triggered, and I can't. And what, what Discourse 13, chapters 1 and 2, what this section has been inspiring us to believe is that we can. Don't believe that you can't. Believe that you can. If you believe that you can't, you never will. If you don't believe that you can, then, then there's no hope at all. If you believe that you can, now we're getting started, right? Believe that you can rein in your temptations, desires, your, your natural, um, you know, the negative emotions, whatever it is. Believe that you can. His question was, but who says you can? Maybe, maybe the animal soul is just stronger than the godly soul. And we've now come full circle to say no. Because the godly soul comes from a higher origin, comes from a higher source, comes from a deeper source, and thus it always maintains the capacity to control, to rein in, to temper, to quell, to, to, to keep down the animal soul and its temptations. So what's the moral of the story? And we're going to jump into, we're going to get into the, into the next um, discourse in a moment. But what's the moral of the story? The moral of the story is it's very fitting that we're going to start Discourse 14 in a moment because it quotes from the opening chapter of Tanya, which is the big, the big deal this week. Um, so what's the moral of the story? We have to, we sh number one, we have the, the ability. We have that capacity for self-control inside, number one. Number two, we have to believe in it in order to tap into it. And when we catch ourselves thinking, I can't, I'm not able to, it's stronger than me, I'm, you know, it's like, I can't, we have to replace that narrative within ourselves with a narrative that says, I can. The whole of... A lot of, the, a lot of this, this, this book is about rewiring the narratives in our brain. So it's, it's, about, it's about interrupting the narrative. Like there's typically a narrative, a story that plays out that we're not even aware of. It's about interrupting the narrative and saying new information. New information, breaking news, I can do this, and then things can change. Will they, are they guaranteed to change? No. Is this a shortcut of doing the work? No. Still have to do the work. But is this a way to, 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 to put ourselves in a different place? Answer is yes. Yaakov, I see your hand up. Yeah. Um, yeah, it seems like that, um, <clears throat> you know, whether we, we know things intellectually or not, um, it seems to be when we're feeling good about ourselves, we have the power to 
think positively. And then, um, you know, when we're feeling um, bad about ourselves, then we just don't have the energy to deal with it. And we seem a little bit more less energetic and more defeatist. So it, uh, yeah, it seems like it's more almost like self-esteem um, rules the day or self-confidence rules the day, whether we succeed or fail in this. And the other point uh, it, before you address that is the um, when I said the body uh, is the third uh a place of intelligence I'm, I'm talking about the physical body like when we ask ourselves hey is this the right thing to do you know a moral dilemma whatever it is um generally the tightness in the stomach the the things don't feel something just doesn't feel right that's right enough and then when everything relaxes the muscles in our stomach relax and our chest and everything the whole body feels right if it feels right it seems to be the infallible source because the brain can be fallible. The emotions can certainly be fallible. Interesting, interesting. So I, I, I don't know that I can, on that second part uh, about the body itself, thank you for clarifying sure. that. I don't know that I can you know, definitively say either way, but it's a very interesting, I, 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 I find your, your point very interesting and that angle very interesting. As far as the first part, I would agree with you. In fact, in Tanya, again, just referencing the... Uh, the Bible of, uh, of, of uh, Chabad Hasidic philosophy, literally called the Bible of Chabad Hasidic philosophy. So in Tanya, he says that you could have two, I think I even mentioned this recently, you could have two um, wrestlers. And based on the mood, based on their mood, their respective moods, sorry, you can, and, one might, and one might be objectively stronger than the other, but based on the mood of one versus the other, that might uh, change the tide of, of the match. In other words, when one is feeling positive and the other one's feeling negative, one's feeling excited, one's feeling lethargic, then that could, that could change the nature of, of the battle. So if we're struggling with, with ourselves, with what's going on inside, and we're not feeling good about ourselves, right, we're more likely to make the negative decision. Think about this in the context of any, any like resolution that we're taking, you know, like a health resolution. So we resolve to whatever it is to be more healthy. And then the moment we have a setback in that area, so we then feel bad about ourselves, and that's more likely to cause us to go down a further negative path of, of additional negative choices in that area. In other words, the odds of saying, the odds of like, okay, I messed up, but let me get back on track, are, it's much harder once we believe that we've messed up. Once we've told ourselves, once we feel bad about messing up, the feeling bad itself, keeps us in that bad space. I don't know, I'm, I'm sure I'm saying something pretty, uh, fairly obvious, but it's important. In fact, there's a Hasidic master that said once that the evil inclination doesn't care about the sin. It's, its goal is not to make us sin for the sin. The goal is to make us sin so that we feel bad about ourselves for sinning, and then once we feel bad, then that's it. Then, 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 anything, is, then anything is on the table. Once we're feeling low, like, bad about ourselves, low, what do we call it, low self-esteem, or just feeling in a negative space, Pandora's box is open, yeah. Yeah, one thing I find interesting when you mentioned like, the horse analogy, most like boxing movies and things, it's the underdog, he just wants to go the distance, and that's success. So to keep focused and do his all, right. is to be in the game optimally, right? And because it would be kind of, like you said, unrealistic <coughs> if he's really not as powerful or skilled, but he's a winner if he just goes the, all beat up, but goes the distance. Right. Yeah. 
little Rocky reference right. or whatever. Look, I mean, I think you also have this sometimes in professional sports where, you know, you have a team, like let's say football, like the last game of the season, you know, before the playoffs, and one team needs to win to get into the playoffs, and the other team, like, like have one, like they have nothing to lose. And they're looser, they're more relaxed. The other teams, right, speaking like what Yaakov said before, like the team that needs to win is like very tight. Like they're, they're very, they're nervous, they're anxious. And the other team is playing loose. And it could be, and, and that team, let's say, won one game the whole year. So they're clearly, I mean, by all, the, by all you know, what we might measure, the inferior team, less than the other team. But it can go that way just because of other factors. So that is a very important factor, it's not, it's, which ties into this whole the Discourse 13. It's about believing in ourselves and the ability to overcome. It's the belief in that that keeps us positive. Okay, let's now, I'm passing out a new text so you can put the old ones aside or whatever, whatever you want to do with them. But Discourse 14, there's three copies there to pass down and two over here. Thank you very much. Okay, and then I'm going to pull it up on the screen. I want to start this. It really continues the, the theme, the narrative of what we just explained. It continues it in a beautiful way. And it quotes the first few chapters of Tanya. So again, Tanya, just to explain, the 19th day of Kislev is the anniversary of the liberation of Rabbi Shneir Zaman of Liadi, known as the Alter Rebbe, the founder of Chabad, in the year 1798. He was freed from czarist imprisonment. He was imprisoned on not true charges. Like, but very serious, carrying a death penalty. Ultimately, he was exonerated and, and freed. But it's understood that it was a question, there was a spiritual um, element here as well, because he opened up the floodgates of teaching the hidden secrets, Kabbalah and Hasidic philosophy, the hidden secrets of, of Torah. And the question was, really, the spiritual question was, should that stop or should that continue? And upon his liberation, it went much bigger and broader. The fact that we're all studying these ideas, these deeper you know, spiritual truths, is all due to this day, to the 19th day of Kislev, 1798. What, by the way, that celebration begins Monday night, or the day itself is Monday night into Tuesday. We're having something tonight, kind of a pre-19th pre Kislev celebration. Um, but that's just a little bit about the day. So his main, the main work that he wrote, the Alter Rebbe wrote, is the book of Tanya, and we're, we're now going to, to bring in elements of the first two chapters of Tanya right here. So let's do this. Discourse 14, chapter 1, he says like this, We can now understand the words of our sages from the Talmud. It says, An oath is administered to him before birth, warning him, be righteous and do not be wicked. Let me explain this. The Talmud says that before a soul, before the soul is sent down into the body, Right, the soul is paired up with the body. Before the soul is sent into the body, the soul is given an oath. It's made to take a promise. And what's the promise? Be righteous. Do not be wicked. So this oath is administered after the, after the soul has been taught the entire Torah. That's what it says in the Talmud. Now it is written, the souls which I have made, from Isaiah, the souls which I have made, and the Alter Rebbe said, in Tanya chapters 1 and 2, the following, and he quotes, this is a, a verbatim quote from Tanya, that this verse from Isaiah, the souls which I have made, doesn't refer to many people with many souls, but even within the same person, 
there are multiple souls. The souls which I have made in every person, every one, every individual has souls, has two souls. So now we quote. This is the indented text. This alludes to two souls. There is one soul which originates in the klipa and the sitra achra. That means the other side, the side of negativity. And which is clothed in the blood of the, of the human being, giving life to the body, as is written, for the life of the flesh is in the blood. Okay, so there's one soul. We call this the animal soul. We call this the natural soul. We call this the lower self, whatever you want to call it. One soul is coming from a lower space. It's, 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 it, he says it's clothed in the blood of the human being. What does it mean? It's clothed, the soul is in the blood. He just means that this is the biological, it's like the physical, it's the physical, instinctive, instinctual soul, life energy of the person, right? From it, he says, stems all the evil char characteristics. Now, it's not evil, but from it stems the evil characteristics. That's a very important distinction. There's nothing wrong with this soul force, but it leads, it could lead to negativity from the four evil elements contained with it. These are anger, there are anger and pride, which emanate from the element of fire, the nature of which is to rise upwards, the appetite for pleasures from the element of water, for water promotes the growth of all kinds of pleasures, frivolity and scoffing, boasting and idle talk from the element of air, and laziness and depression from the element of earth. So you have all of these negative traits, all of these negative characteristics, anger, pride, pleasure-seeking, hedonistic pleasures, right? Um, frivolity, scoffing, laziness, depression, all of these could be re reasonably termed negative character traits. Well, where do they come from? They don't come from the godly soul. They come from the lower soul. They come from the lower self. Right? What's the lower self? The lower self is all about self-preservation. So when I feel threatened, anger. When I feel like I did a good job, there's pride. When I want something, I, I seek the pleasure. Done. Right? Frivolity and scoffing or whatever that, and, and laziness and depression. All of it is about me. So let's continue. From this soul, this lower soul, stem also the good characteristics that are to be found in the inner in, in nature of all Israel, such as mercy and benevolence. In other words, these also could lead to good. These also could lead to good traits. From the case of Israel, the soul of the klipa is derived from klipat noga, which also contains good, as it originates in the esoteric tree of knowledge of good and evil. We don't have time right now to break this down. I'll do this next week as we begin. I'll go back a little bit like I did today and kind of like reset this. But here's the point. This lower soul is not evil. It, it, it's the source of negativity, but it's also the source of good things. Like if I want to give to you so that you'll give to me, right? But I'm being nice to you, but I'm expecting in return also something nice. So that's also from the lower self. Why? Because there's a bit of a, it's not unconditional giving. It's kind of like we're bartering. It's like I, I scratch your back, you scratch my back. So there's kind of like um, um, More of a, transaction. a transactional relationship. But, it's, but, but oftentimes we're kind and we're giving with the, with the even if it's not you know, overt, even if we don't say it, even to ourselves, but there's an understanding that if I do this for you, you'll do this for me. Even in like, you read kids' books, or you read like, you know, stuff about like morals and ethics, and oftentimes it's couched in, you know, do good to someone else because one day you'll need something also. There's like su subtle, like, it's self ultimately it's self-serving. Ultimately it comes back to like, this is going to benefit me. That's not from the godly soul. That's still from the, from the animal soul. And as the animal soul can also understand 
that if I want this, I could either knock the guy out and get it, or I can help them and they'll give it to me. And even the animal soul cannot, can understand that there's different ways to get what you want, but it's still about getting what you want. The second soul of Israel is truly a part of God, of God from on high. What's the second soul? The second soul is peace of God. It's completely selfless, as it is written, and he breathed into his nostrils a breath of life, and you breathed the soul into me. It's written the Zohar, he who exhales, exhales from within him. That is to say, page 204, I just want to finish off this quote from Tanya quickly, from his inwardness and, and his innermost. So when you, when, you, um, when you exhale forcibly, or forcefully, see, when you talk, you can keep on talking, right? Pretty much, you don't have to catch your breath. But when you exhale with force, right, you have to, you have to breathe back in. I mean, you always have to breathe back in, but it's like it takes out of you, it takes a lot out of you. So, um, for it's something that is eternal and innermost, for it is something of his internal and innermost vitality that man emits through breathing out with force. Last paragraph. So, allegorically speaking, have the souls of Jews risen in the divine thought as is written, my firstborn son is, uh, is Israel, and you are children unto the Lord your God. That is to say, just as a child has arrived from his father's brain, likewise, to use an anthropomorphism, the soul of each Israelite has arrived from his blessed thought and wisdom, for he is wise, but not through a noble wisdom, because he and his wisdom are one. Okay, all of this, and again, I know I went through this very quickly. The goal was to study a little Tanya in, in meshed in, in our text. So we did, we, did our, we did a few paragraphs of Tanya here to get it in. What, if, if I were to summarize this in very short, in 60 seconds, I would say the following. We have two souls. There's a lower soul and the higher soul. Same thing we've been speaking about uh, you know, thus far. Animal soul, godly soul. What's the animal soul? It's not evil, but it's natural. It's not evil, but it's instinctual. It's about self. It's about self-preservation. It's about bettering self. So it could lead to negative. If I feel threatened again, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to strike out. If I feel, you know, whatever it is. If I feel, you know, if, if I'm triggered, then something's bad going to happen. It could also lead to good things, right? If I feel like I want something, I might do something nice to get what I want. So it could also lead to good things, but it could also lead to bad things. It's, it's, it's about self. The second soul is completely selfless. It's a piece of God. And because it's a piece of God, it's not about me. It's about connection. It's about selflessness, whether it's for spiritual things or whether it's for the soul within someone else. It's completely selfless and giving. Where he's going with this is we're going to ultimately ask a question. And the question is, we'll ask this next week, but I'm just foreshadowing the question. The Talmud says that before the soul comes down into the body, this is the godly soul. The soul is given an oath, be good and don't be bad. <laughs> He's going to ask the question, you're giving it to the wrong party. You're giving the godly soul an oath? The godly soul is good, good to go. Like, you should give it to the animal soul or to the body. Be good. You know, don't, don't mess up. Why are you giving it to the godly soul? You're, the godly soul is automatically plugged in. Are you with me on the question? Yeah. The godly soul is a piece of God. It's, a higher, it's the higher conscience, the higher self. So why would you give the godly soul an oath? Yeah? You know, put your hand in the Bible and swear. Like, why would you, like, that's, it seems like you're, 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 um, you're addressing the wrong party. Address the animal soul. Address the evil inclination. Address the body. The parts that are susceptible to temptation, not the part that's always pure. So he'll give a beautiful answer next week about the meaning of the oath. The nature of the oath is not simply an oath. It's much more than that, but stay tuned for next week.
same bat time, same bat channel. So in summation, what we did today is we talked about tohu and tikkun, chaos and repair. We, we, we saw, at least initially, how chaos is big and powerful and repair is limited and small. But ultimately, repair, tikkun, comes from a higher source than tohu, than chaos. And that's why, that's why, no matter how big the challenge internally, we believe that we have the power to overcome using the tools that we have been given. We have the tools to overcome our inner challenges. And it's when we believe in that ability that we can exercise that ability. If we don't believe in it, we can't exercise it. If we don't believe that we can, then we won't be able to. So step one is know that you have the power inside. Number two, believe that you can actually conquer the temptation right now, this moment. Number three, just do it. <laughs> if only life were so simple. But at least we have a bit of a, um, a meditative process. This is an empowering text. In a world that so often tells us how powerless we are, right? You can't do this. You can't do that. You, this happened. That happened. So you can't. Kabbalah tells us you can. It empowers us to believe in our abilities and to see that ability through. I hope that the, the gravity, the power of this message is coming through. I'm trying to the best of my ability to, to, to portray it. I hope it's coming through. And I hope this has been meaningful to you. I want to wish everybody a good yomtif, which means a, how do you translate good yomtif? Happy holiday. Eh, doesn't, doesn't sound right in English. A good yomtif. Because, not for Thanksgiving, also maybe for Thanksgiving, but primarily because, again, it's, uh, we're, we're on the doorstep of the 19th day of Kislev, the Rosh Hashanah of Hasidic philosophy, and the opening up of the teachings of Jewish mysticism. So it's an appropriate time to think about commitments to increase our study of Jewish mysticism and our practice of uh, you know, practically doing good and positive things. So everyone should take should think of good resolutions, and um, please God, will uh, continue to bring light into the world. We have this amazing confluence of so many things. The 19th of Kislev, then we have Hanukkah beginning next week, which is all about light, right? It's all about the light uh, menorah in the window. It's about the light illuminating the outside. So indeed, let's uh, continue to be torch bearers, carriers of light, to bring light into this, uh, into this world that so often is cold and dark. All right, questions or comments? Great class. Thank you very much. Beautiful, beautiful. So empowered and, and so connected with, with, the, with, with to, to try to look the world in a different dimension. Like everything is so important because we, we can repair and repair and repair. That's thank beautiful. you, thank you. That's the main thing. The main thing is the fact, the believing that we can fix that we can repair, we have the power. Number one, inside, and then number two, of course, outside. Thank you. Mariana, please give my best to the family, to Alex and the kids. Always thinking about you guys. All right, excellent. Thank you very Great to much. see you all. Um, good jump, Diff, and we'll see you guys soon. Don't forget, tonight, if you're in town, tonight join us 6 p.m. for a beautiful celebration. We got dinner and wine and music and inspiration and a brand new copy 
of the Tanya. I don't know if you can see this. This is from the publisher, from the publisher, In Town Jewish Academy, special, special edition, just made for us. All right. I'm not the editor-in-chief, but I'm, I'm, I'm involved in it. So I, I got inside track on these things. All right. All right, we'll see you guys. Take care. Bye. Bye.